Hey, we are in a series called Gifts, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. This is going to be one of those sermons where we're going to read a lot from one passage um, for the most part, and then some of the other passages, you know, will be up on the screen. But we don't, this passage won't be up on the screen for you just to be able to read, so I highly encourage you to look this up for yourself. Luke chapter 1, Luke is one of the Gospels. These are the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. There's four of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and then we get to Luke. If you get to John or Acts or Romans in your Bible, you've gone too far. Luke chapter 1, and today we're going to be looking at one of the lesser known parts of the Christmas story. In fact, a lot of people would refer to this as the prelude or the prequel to the the events that happen in Bethlehem. If you're looking at a timeline, this is about a year before Bethlehem. Does that make sense? So we're about a year before Bethlehem. Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 5 and we're just going to go for it. It says, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. Let's all say Zechariah together. Zechariah. One, two, three. Zechariah. There you go. He's our main character. Again, maybe you've never heard of him. Maybe you're like, I don't see him in my nativity scene at home. No, he's not really part of the nativity scene. Who is Zechariah? He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, another key character here, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Verse 7, they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they both were very old. Just, just for a moment, let me pause. We're going to get back in this passage in just a moment. But can I just say this? Infertility is excruciating. It's horrible. Some of you in this room have experienced this and and I, I just would say I'm sorry that you've gone through this. And I have no idea. I, I cannot begin to imagine what you've suffered along with that. In the ancient world, infertility had the added on stigma of people had an assumption. This was a cultural assumption. If you were unable to give birth to children, the thought was that the one true God is showing justice towards you because you have sinned in some major way that that God would close your womb as a sign of his justice, as a sign of his wrath against you. So can you imagine, I mean, you already have, and then then there's the whole issue of who's going to care for you in your old age. There was no social security back then. There was no nursing homes. Your children would be the way that when you were old, they would be the ones who would care for you. So think about all the stuff swirling around the fact that here you have this older couple who have never been able to have kids. Elizabeth would walk through the marketplace, and it would be whispers. Yeah, wonder what grievous sin she's committed against God. Now, the tension here is she is barren, and yet, what did we just read in verse 6? Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. So here's the tension. You have this couple who are actually in God's eyes. God sees them as holy. He sees them as righteous. He sees how obedient they've been, and yet, on the other hand, barren. And the question that I would be asking if I was Elizabeth and Zechariah is, where are you, God? This equation doesn't make sense. It should be that if I do X and Y and Z for you, that you will give me children. You'll, you will cause my life to be fruitful. You will cause my life to be fulfilled and to be blessed. God, where are you? Where, oh God, are you? Where is the God of Sarah? 
Where's the God of Rebekah? Where's the God of Hannah? These great matriarchs of the Old Testament. Like, where are you? Verse 8 goes on to say, one day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. And as was the custom of the priests, he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Just to pause again, this is a huge honor. Once, once a year, the, a, a priest would be selected, and it would be like throwing dice, you know? You would just, and, and it falls upon him to be able to go into the Lord's presence, the Holy of Holies, representing the very close, intimate presence, Shekinah glory of God. That he is able to walk in, and as was the custom, everybody else would be outside praying and interceding. And in a sense, they're praying and interceding that he doesn't die while he's in there. We know that he's old, so probably this would be his last opportunity to ever be able to experience God's presence in this kind of way. It says, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Verse 12, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he, saw, when he saw him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he, your son John, will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. I know, I, I don't want to get political here, and we mentioned this last week. It's amazing in the Christmas story how many instances there are of, of within the womb someone experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Just imagine if someone who is not yet born can be full of the Holy Spirit. What does that say for how much God values life? We'll keep going. Some of you are mad at me. That's all right. I'm just reading scripture here. He, your son, John, will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. This is, this is absolutely amazing, right? Like he already, I mean, you think about it, the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to go into the Holy of Holies, a place that very few have ever experienced before, and he's in the Holy of Holies, and then he experiences an angel. I mean, that's cool. But then what the angel begins to say has to kind of confuse him, and we know this from how he responds in a moment, that, that it's almost like Zachariah is going, whoa, okay, wait, I, I've, I've had people pump my heart up with hope before, only to have it months later deflated. You know, some well-meaning person comes, oh, Zechariah, I'm sure God's going to give you a baby. In fact, I, God spoke to me that he's going to give you a baby, and, and only to have those hopes dashed, right? And we see this in how Zechariah responds. The very next verse, verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? Like, hold on. Wait, I'm an old man now. And my wife is also well along in years. Guys in this room, this is great. This is just parenthetical. It has nothing to do with our sermon. But you notice how he refers to, I'm an old man. My wife, she's well along in years. There's a lesson for us guys, right? You know, when, when we think about what he's saying to this angel, I can't be skeptical. I can't, I can't, or, or, or I can't judge him. I would be skeptical. 
I can imagine just Zechariah standing there. He's like, all right, Hezekiah, where, what are you, how'd you get this person into the Holy of Holies? Joke's over. Ha ha, I get it. You can go now. Come on out. Because he's saying, I, I don't know about all this. The angel rebukes him and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And Zechariah is next told that he will not be able to talk until this baby is born. That's the sign that he's receiving that, that this will happen. Skip to verse 23. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. And this is what she says. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. And here's the cool thing. This, this story that we just looked at, is the introduction to the Christmas story. Maybe it's the part that you've, maybe you've never even heard this story before. This baby that was born to Zachariah and Elizabeth would be named John. And we would know him 2,000 years later as John the Baptizer. John the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. John the one who in the Jordan River would actually baptize Jesus, initiating and kicking off his public ministry. When you think about it, the Christmas story really is one miracle after another. A childless couple conceives, Zechariah and Elizabeth. A virgin girl becomes pregnant. A shocked fiancé decides to stay with his pregnant, soon-to-be bride. Outcast shepherds are given an angelic, pyrotechnic invitation to come and see the birth of a king. Pagan, foreign rulers... See a sign in the stars and leave everything to journey, some believe, for years in order to investigate. Miracle after miracle after miracle. It's like after 400 years of silence, God is going out of his way to say, listen, I've never left you. I never abandoned you. I haven't become weary over the years. My strength has not diminished. I'm still the God of miracles. I'm still your healer. I'm still your wisdom. I'm still your protector. I'm still your rescuer. But the greatest miracle of all is that God comes down to earth and becomes fleshy. That he enters into our world and he fully experiences the dysfunction of humanity. He experiences our brokenness. He experiences our grief and sorrow. He experiences betrayal and abandonment and physical pain beyond imagination that God becomes man. And what does this God-man do when he comes to earth? I mean, he's a baby, but he's only a baby for the number of months that a baby typically is a baby, right? He grows up. He doesn't stay a baby. He becomes an apprentice for his father, probably in his teenage years, and learns woodworking and learns how to be a first-class carpenter. i got to imagine he was the best carpenter ever. No one would ever take a table back to, to Jesus, a carpenter, right? Think about, think about the number of years that he, just, that he just worked in obscurity. At 30 years old, he kicks off a public ministry and and, and begins to approach the world as a rabbi, as a teacher. And people were used to this. Rabbis, you know, were all over the place. And, and he calls several teenage guys to come and be his apprentices. And, and he begins to 
He begins to teach, and this is what rabbis do. Rabbis teach, but he taught as, as one who had never taught before. He had an authority. Jesus became the greatest communicator who's ever walked this earth. But he does something else that other rabbis didn't do. He would see somebody who was sick and infirmed, and he would have compassion upon them. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit and had a gift of healing and working miracles that people hadn't seen. Someone would be oppressed and imprisoned with demonic spirits, and Jesus would speak to them with an authority, and those demons would come out of them, and they would be, they would be free, set free in a way that they hadn't felt in years. Jesus was able to do miracles like turning water into wine, multiplying food, like there was a power about him. And what it was, Scripture speaks to, that it was an anointing of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit had gifted him to do these things. In fact, years, or not years, weeks, months after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter would look back and Peter would describe Jesus this way. We find this in Acts 10, we'll put this up on the screen, Acts 10, verse 38. Peter says these words, and no doubt you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Let's just pause there. Jesus, fully man, also fully God, is anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. But what what is the result? Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, this isn't the only instance that we read about this. This is all over the Gospels. Let me give you one more example. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew describes Jesus' ministry this way. He says, Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching everywhere the good news about the kingdom, and he healed people who had every kind of sickness and disease. Jesus... The greatest miracle this world has ever seen was gifted by the Holy Spirit to heal and to perform miracles. He's walking around demonstrating the power of the Spirit. And then he does something crazy. Remember I mentioned that as a rabbi that he invited several teenagers to come and be his apprentices, to be his disciples. Jesus does something in the midst of just a very short window of time where in the midst of him being gifted by the Spirit working miracles, healing people. He looks at his apprentices, his disciples, and he says, I'm going to impart to you the same Holy Spirit that has been upon me, and you also are going to heal and you're going to work miracles. Look at, look at this. In Luke chapter 9, let's begin with verse 1. We'll put this up on the screen as well. It says, one day Jesus called together his 12 apostles, these are his apprentices, and he gave them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the coming of the kingdom of God and to what? And to heal the sick. So they began their circuit of the villages. This is his apprentices, his disciples. And what are they doing? Preaching the good news and healing the sick. On the night that Jesus is arrested, at the very end of his public ministry, this is literally Judas is going to come in a matter of minutes or hours. He's going to betray him with a kiss. The night of Jesus' arrest, in John chapter 14, we read these words that Jesus speaks over his disciples. He says this. He says, the truth is, anyone who believes in me. We're going to pause right there because I think this is really important. First of all, he says, the truth is. Anytime Jesus says that, uh, in the Greek, this is a pay attention. This is, hey, 
eyes on me. This is Jesus talk, right? When he says the truth is, it means you need to, you need to get this. The truth is, and then he says anyone, meaning that this is universal, this is open, to, there, there's no disclaimers, there's no hoops you've got to jump through. Anyone, but the qualifier is that you have to believe in him, right? Anyone who believes in me, this is Jesus speaking, this isn't me, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. And if you're not shocked enough by that statement, he continues and says, and will do even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. I'm not making this stuff up. You need to see this in your own Bible. He goes on in verse 13. He says, you can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it because the work of the Son brings glory to the Father. Yes, ask anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, I do have to, I do have to give you a disclaimer here because earlier in the same conversation, and you see this throughout John chapter 15, Jesus says, listen, I, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he talks about being connected to him. He says, hey, remain in me, abide in me, stay connected, stay attached to me. Allow my words to remain in you. So here's, here's the thing. We can't just willy-nilly go around like, I've got the power. You know, just like, you know, just I want this and I want that. And God's going to give me anything that I ask for. And, man, I could use a brand new car right about now. You know, that, that, that's not the way it goes. He's already very clearly in John chapter 15 set the stage that you've got to be in alignment with him. And if you are in alignment with him, you're going to be asking for the things that are in alignment with his will. Okay, so this isn't like some fleshy, we get to go around and have all of our wants taken care of. But, but having said that, I think a lot of times we excuse this because our experience is, and I'm talking about for the church, the church, the American church, our experience is we ask God to do things, we ask God to heal people, we ask God to perform miracles, and he doesn't do it. And so what we've done over the years and over the generations is we have developed a theology in the American church that God doesn't do this stuff anymore. I'm, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm preaching way better than you guys are letting on this morning, but that's all right. <laughs> and so we've developed a theology that God doesn't do this stuff anymore, a theology that is not based on the word of God. It is based on our experiences. When all over the word of God, we see that Jesus did this stuff, his followers did this stuff, and that we can expect to do this stuff. Right? Here's a quick recap of what we've learned. I'm going to say these rapid fire. Number one, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. True? Number two, Jesus went around telling people about God's good news of salvation. True? Number three, Jesus healed all who were oppressed. True. It's what scripture told us. Number four, Jesus gave his followers the power and authority to also cast out demons and heal diseases. True. Jesus' followers went around telling people about God's good news of salvation. Jesus' followers healed the sick. We read that, right? This is in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. Seven, and this is the final statement. Jesus promised that anyone who believes in him will do even greater works than he did. Is it true? I mean, I mean you got you to look in the word of God and, and not, don't just take my word for it. You've got to be able to see that this is scriptural, what we're saying. And you say, Ken, why is this important? This is a Sunday before Christmas. 
Now, we'll get to the nativity on Christmas Eve. But we have a generation that is crying out, where is God? We have a generation that's crying out like, I don't know if I believe. There, the amount of, of, of agnosticism in the United States of America is rapidly growing. And part of the reason is the church. You, you walk into a church and there's no difference. You don't feel any kind of difference between what you did in a bar last night and what you do in the church on Sunday morning. There's no difference. There's no difference in power. There's no difference in, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're fast forwarding. Is everybody with me? I don't want to lose anybody here. This is now after Jesus' death, resurrection, after he's ascended to the Father. 17 years after that, the Apostle Paul is penning a letter to a group of Jesus' followers in Corinth. And in the midst of this letter, he makes a hugely bold, audacious claim that the Holy Spirit, think about this, 17 years after all this, Paul claims that the Holy Spirit is still gifting Jesus' followers with these gifts of power. And we see, I encourage you, if, you, if this is all new to you, read 1 Corinthians chapters 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. He begins chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, hey, about spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. Like, you need to know about this stuff. In verses 8 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he lists nine specific gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about these gifts over the last couple of weeks. The three gifts that I haven't mentioned yet are what we call the power gifts. And the power gifts are faith, the gift of faith. And this isn't a faith like that we all have in order to become followers of Jesus. Like we all, everybody needs faith in order to become a follower of Jesus. Right? It is by grace that we have been saved through, through faith. Faith is a requirement that we all have. The gift of faith is a faith where, and, and maybe you've rubbed shoulders with someone like this. This is someone who has heard a distinct um, word from God that is in alignment with the word of God, and they just, they just latch onto it, and they just believe that it's going to happen when everybody else is saying, I don't see that happening. No, God clearly spoke it to me. I'm just, I'm just standing on this. I'm going to believe this. I know I don't see it with the natural, but I'm going to believe this. Th this is a gift that is for the body of Christ. Can I just say, we need people in the body of Christ who have the gift of faith. It stirs me. It encourages me. I don't always have the gift of faith. I have a gift of cynicism. <laughs> That's not a gift, right? I, 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 just, I just see things. I'm, sometimes I'm hypercritical. I need people who have the gift of faith. Some of you need people around you who have the gift of faith, right? In the world that we live in. <laughs> We need this, right? The, the power gifts are the gift of faith, the gift of healing, and the working of miracles. And Paul seems, 17 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, Paul seems, in his writing, he just makes it like, like there's no question, he, he's not like, these things haven't ceased. These things haven't stopped happening. Paul is going, not only are they still going on, these are still giftings for the church today. Let me, let me say it this way. Just as Jesus was gifted by the Holy Spirit to heal and to perform miracles, and just as Jesus' disciples were gifted by the Holy Spirit to heal and perform miracles, what if the Apostle Paul was right? 
What if the Holy Spirit is still here at the very end of 2021, still giving followers of Jesus, including us who are in this room today, the gift of faith, the gift of healing, and the power to perform miracles? What if this Christmas season, God wants his followers to rediscover and receive and step into and use the gifts that he has given? What if you're just one bold prayer away from seeing God do something supernatural? What if we don't have to beg and plead for God to heal and to perform miracles? What if he's just waiting for some who would be willing to risk their reputation And in 15 seconds of courage, walk across the room and pray a prayer that you don't even know if it's going to work. But God has put something in your heart to do it. What if he's just waiting for some people who are willing to believe him and risk looking stupid? Earlier I said that the greatest miracle is that God came down and he became fleshy. I, I think there's lots of greatest miracles in the Bible. It's kind of like my kids. My youngest, Kara, is my favorite of our three kids. And my middle daughter, Kate, is my favorite of our three kids. And my oldest, my boy, Kyle, he's my favorite of our three kids. See, the greatest miracle is that God came to earth and became fleshy. He became one of us, a stranger just like one of us, a slob like one of us trying to find his way home, right? That's the greatest miracle, right? I was quoting the great poet Joan Osborne, if some of you didn't get that. But the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle is that he lived as a man and took on all the grief and sorrow and pain and disillusionment and dysfunction and betrayal and abandonment. And he took it all upon himself and that he willingly, this God-man, this one who is eternal, everlasting to everlasting, who created everything that exists, that he willingly allowed those that he formed and created to nail him to a cross so that he could atone for the sins of the world. And take our punishment upon himself. The greatest miracle is that he died for us. And the greatest miracle is that three days later that he busted through the wall of death. Proving that death has lost its sting. And that he has, cur that he has the authority and the power to do all that he has said that he could do. And the greatest miracle is that for those who follow him that he has gifted us with his spirit. And we have received his spirit. And then we can walk in his strength and his anointing. It's amazing, isn't it? And my question is, we're going to lead to some other things in just a moment. But before we get to that stuff, I just want to ask you, have you received Jesus into your life? Have you humbled yourself and said, God, I can't. I don't have what it takes. In and of myself, I'm helpless. I'm broken. I'm powerless. I'm sin-stained and sin-covered. God, I don't have what it takes. I've tried. I need you. Jesus, have mercy on me. Come into my life based on what you did on the cross, based on your resurrection. Will you come and forgive me of my sins and be the master and leader of my life? If you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, today's your day. Today, right now, right in this moment, you, don't, you, you can just, 
as a whisper, just say, Jesus, forgive me. Lead me. Be my master. In a few moments, we're going to invite people to come for prayer. And, and when I invite those individuals to come for prayer, if you're, if you're wanting Jesus to come into your life, I want you to come for prayer at the same time. Okay? Don't be shy. And just, don't, not yet, in just a moment. So here, here's, a, here's an interesting thing in the Bible. We've been talking a lot about the power of God, right? God is still powerful. He's still showing his power. You know, the Greek word used for power often, most often in the New Testament, is a Greek word dunamis. I remember growing up in the church, and this was one of the lessons they taught us all the time, that dunamis is the same word that we get the English word dynamite. Any of you ever heard that in church? I was talking to my friend Kevin, who's sitting back there a couple weeks ago, and we are talking about this, and, and he said, you know, really, really dunamis isn't dynamite. Because as a junior high kid in church, like, I love that idea. That dunamis is dynamite. I'm like, man, you know, if you really want to teach this lesson well, if you're a middle school, like, teacher, like, let's go out in the parking lot and blow something up, right? I heard a cat meowing before church. Like, let's strap that thing. I'm a middle school, a middle school kid, a middle school boy. A middle school boy might think that, right? Next week, there'll be half the number of people in this place. But dunamis isn't dynamite. The dunamis in the Bible, the power of God in the Bible, it's not dynamite. In fact, this is what Kevin was talking, we were having this conversation, that it's actually anti-dynamite. Dunamis is anti-dynamite. It's the reversal of dynamite. It's all the chaos coming back into order. That's the power. The power of God doesn't blow things up. The power of God comes into our lives, into the chaos, into the, the fog, into the darkness, and it brings order. I thought this is a great, are you, yeah, this is dunamis. It's not dynamite. It's anti-dynamite. It's the reversal. It's all of it coming back together. See, this is what God is after in our world. You do know that all will be made right. You do know that all this craziness of our world will be brought back into order. You do know that we're heading back to the garden, right? And that God is wanting his agents, his apprentices, his followers, that we would be a people to recognize that not only 2,000 years ago was Jesus gifted by the Holy Spirit to work miracles and to heal. And not only were Jesus' followers in that first century gifted by the Holy Spirit to work miracles and to heal, but what if Paul is right that today in the church, God has gifted people to work miracles and to heal? So how do we know who they are? Who is it in this room? <laughs> right? It's like the superheroes, right? Like the, those movies where you're like, well, who really had? Here, here's the thing. You don't know it until you try. And I even believe that God gifts different people in different times and in different seasons. And so to walk around going, well, I don't have that gifting, how do you know that God isn't gifting you in this moment? This is where the risk comes in, right? Because the pushback to all of this is, Ken, I've tried it. Ken, I prayed for somebody and nothing happened. I prayed about a situation, nothing. 
Can I tell you, I totally get that. It has been the great barrier that I have had to try to overcome in my own spiritual life because I've prayed for so many people. And I don't see results in the natural. And so experience would cause me to say, well, this stuff just doesn't happen anymore. But that would be building a theology on experience as opposed to what the Word of God clearly teaches. Here's what it's going to require. It's going to require us taking a risk. On top of it, it's going to require recognizing that nobody in this room is the healer. All we are are obedient servants that will be awkward for a moment and step in and take a step of courage and just say, I'm not the healer, but I know the one who does. And do you mind if I just pray for you for a moment? And I'm going to believe that God is going to do something in you that doctors haven't been able to do or that the situation that you're in isn't going to just change. Like, that God has the power that you need in your life right now. So I was thinking about this this week, like, okay, how do we end this? We end it by trying it. Like, if we can't try this stuff in the church, you're never going to try this in the break room at work this week. You're never going to try this on the school bus. You're never going to try this in your family gatherings. Like, if we can't do this in the church, we don't have any hope of courageously walking across the room and asking someone if we can pray for them, right? So here's what we're just going to, we're just going to try this. Think of this as a laboratory. This is just a teaching hospital, okay? We're just going to, we're just going to learn and see how this goes. So here's the first thing I need. I need a group of people that we can experiment on. I need some people who say, Ken, I need healing in my body. Ken, I need a miracle. Listen, maybe you've asked for healing a hundred times and nothing ever happened. You've asked people to pray over you. You've gone to different churches and nothing has ever happened. You're the person we want this morning. Would you let us, would you let us, would you just be the guinea pigs that we can try this out on? Let's just see for God's reputation, for his glory, for his namesake, if he won't just do something in here that would cause us to go, (gasps) and if he did it at church, maybe he'll do it at Whirlpool. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm being totally serious right now. If you need healing in your body, you need a miracle, would you come? In fact, let's all stand. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. If you, if you need healing, and don't, don't allow the enemy to talk you out of this, okay? Don't, don't start making excuses. Don't say, well, other people need this more. Listen, there's not going to be a brownout in heaven because too many people were prayed for this morning, okay? God's not going to be like, oh, there's two. Which one, right? So don't be like, well, my need isn't as big as somebody else's, so I'm going to let other people respond. If you just go ahead and come all the way to the front here. Maybe make about a foot between you and the front. I'm going to ask you just to stand. Come on, I need you to respond. Don't wait. Don't wait. If you, if you need healing, you need a miracle. Maybe there's someone super close to you in your life who needs healing. They need a miracle. You can come for them. We can spread all the way out. You can go all the way, go, go all the way to the end there if you need to. Anybody else? Okay, there's a lot of people up here, all right? So this is what this means. I need a lot of people who are just saying, you know what? I, I'm not the healer. But I'm just going to choose to believe that maybe God's going to work through me today. 
So I need, this, this is going to take a lot because there's a lot of people up here. I'm going to need a lot of you to just say, I'm just, I, I don't even know how to pray for, I've never prayed for another person out loud before in my life. But I'm willing to try this out. If you're willing to just try this out, would you just come to the front here? I'm telling you, what if this is the morning that God not only wants to heal someone, but he wants to use you as a conduit for the healing. I just need one person with each person up here, okay? It's preferably guys with guys and ladies with ladies. We're just going to try it. Let's just take God at his word and try it and see what he's going to do. And in a minute, I'm going to give you more instructions. So just, we don't have to get all weird yet. <laughs> okay. couple of instructions. Does everybody have somebody praying with you? Raise your hand if you don't have anybody praying with you. And you'll know, right, right up here and right up here, I need two more ladies that are willing. Way over here on the end, I need a guy all the way over there on the end. Come on, just... Step of courage here. Step of courage. We might need to do a couple together. Megan, do you mind praying for both of these? For Teresa? And, and then I need someone still. Are you needing prayer? Cheryl, would you pray for both of these? Over here. Who else? Is someone over with Andrew? Anybody else need prayer? Kim's here. She's, she's ready to pray for whoever. Okay. Here, here's, listen, I want you to look at me for just a moment. Because I'm going to give you instructions here. Listen, there's no pressure on you. There's no pressure on the one who needs healing, and there's no pressure on the person who's praying for the, okay? We're not, this is God. He is the healer. He is the source, okay? I'm going to ask you, we're going to pray specific prayers this morning. We're not just going to pray general prayers. So in order to do this, you're going to need to real quick, if you don't know the name of the person that you're praying for, this is a great time. Just, hey, what, what's your name? I, I should know your name. I see you every week, but I can't remember it. You got a free pass right now to ask the people their name. And then ask, what specifically can I pray for this morning? Okay? And we're going to pray. Don't worry. We're gonna, some of you are like, are we ever going to pray? And we're going to get to that. Okay, you know the name of the person you're praying for? You know, you know what you're specifically praying for? Is everybody good? Okay, listen. We don't have to beg God. Okay, we don't have to beg him. He's not up there going, well, if they would have been a little louder, maybe. We don't have to beg him. Every good and perfect gift is, comes from above, right? He is a giver of good and perfect gifts. So we're just going to boldly pray and just, just say, God, you told us to do this. We're trying you. We're taking you at your word. God, would you heal, all right? And as we're praying here in the front, I'm going to encourage you, as you're standing back there, you're not the lessers. You're not the JV back there, okay? We need you praying as well. And I'm going to give you two issues in particular that I want you guys praying for. We have a 13-year-old over in Memphis, Tennessee at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. He needs a miracle. He needs God. The doctors have said there's nothing more they can do. They've, get, they've said go home, hospice, do all that. We're praying for a miracle. Would you lift him up? His name's Isaac. We're praying specifically for God to do a miracle in Isaac's body. Secondly, we have a lady who's an online host of our church named Terry. She is ALS. Can we just pray for God to minister to her today? That God would bring healing into her body as well. That he would minister his wisdom and his peace and his presence to her. All right, let's, let's begin to pray. So you have your assignment out there. We have our assignment up here. Let's just believe. God, would you do what you do? We trust you, Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just join our faith together. We pray for Isaac this morning. God, would you stretch out your hand? You are our healer. Would you heal your son, oh God? In Jesus' name, be with Larry and Delilah and Ava, God. Minister your presence and your peace to them, oh God. God, we pray for our sister Terry, God, that she would sense your presence and your peace in such a powerful way that in this moment, in that nursing home, God, that you would touch her in Jesus' name. Father, we commit that we will keep on asking and we will keep on seeking and we will keep on knocking. We are believing you, oh God. We are believing you. We put our trust in you, not in our experiences. We put our trust in your word and what you have to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to encourage those who are praying to continue praying. If you... If you're making a decision to follow Jesus this morning, on your connection card, there's a place that says my next steps. Make sure you check one of those boxes there. If you're interested in baptism, you can check the box about baptism as well. Hey, this week, may you know that the Lord is with you. May you know that you are loved by your Heavenly Father. May you know that He has gifted you. Every follower of Jesus in this room, you are gifted by your Father in Heaven through His Holy Spirit. God bless you. If we don't see you on Christmas Eve, have a great Christmas, a Merry Christmas. We love you. See you soon. Next week, 10 o'clock, one service. One service next week. See you later, guys.